0: Pray. Guard my mouth from error. Amen. 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 Well, loved ones, what a joy it is to uh, be back here with all of us again, worshiping together. And I know I've said it many times, and Lord willing, continue to say it. It is uh, the sweetest sound in the world to me to hear you pray. What a joy it is to pray together and to call on God. The Lord. Let's get to it. Acts chapter 6 today. Acts chapter 6, verse 8, and we're going to, and this is not a typo, Acts chapter 7 all the way to verse 60. Okay, Acts 6, 8. So buckle up, because here we go. Praise the Lord. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, put up your hand right now. Our ushers are coming forward, and we want to put a copy of God's Word in your lap, okay? So put your hands up nice and high. Don't be shy. Our ushers are coming forward. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please keep that as a gift, as a gift For us, right here, front row, right here, for joy, joy, joy. Right here, front row. There you go. And please keep that as a free gift from us to you to encourage you to continue to study God's word at home. And on those Bibles we just handed out, it's on page 533. Youth, you need your questions for youth night. They're at the back table. You can go ahead and grab them and track along during the service. Well, here we are in our next message In our series called To the Ends of the Earth, verse by verse, line by line, through the incredible book of Acts. And if you remember, uh, the main theme that's going on through the book of Acts, it's all tethered based on one theme. And that is, say it, say it. Okay, come on, loved ones, help me out, y'all. I know we're getting into our Bibles and it's all good, but let's go. What is the main theme of Acts? Come on! It is witness. And what is that taken from? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The entire book is encircled around this verse. It's directing all it. It's actually the whole outline of the book in one verse. You'll see it right here. You will receive power. This is Jesus giving this promise just moments before his ascension. It's the disciples commissioning. On their mission to continue on his ministry here on earth, he says, promise. I love this. You will receive power. Power. That is divine supernatural power. Greek word dunamite. It's where we get our English word dynamite from. Dynamite power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What is a witness? What is a witness? One who is unafraid to proclaim the person and work of Jesus Christ and believes it so much that they're willing to die so that others may live. Is that not Jesus' life? There it is. Willing to die so that others may live. And so today is our last message in part one of this series. Our last message, part one, which is the witness to Jerusalem. Part two will be to Judea and Samaria. And part three, chapters 13 to 28, is to the end of the earth. And so all of these seven chapters have laid a foundation for what the life of a faithful witness is to look like individually and corporately for us as the church. We saw, just remember, you can go back and listen to all of these messages. We saw the power of the witness was from the Holy Spirit. The message of the witness was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mindset of the witness was a mindset of expectancy, that it's never just another moment. It's never just another conversation when God's glory is on the line. We saw the testimony of the witness is to be bold and not timid or fearful we saw the priority in the life of the witness is a priority of prayer we saw the lifestyle of the witness is to be a lifestyle of radical generosity we saw the community the witness community that is the church is to be a community of sacrificial service and did you notice did you catch all those things that we've been studying all of those are another piece that is a blueprint of Jesus' life. All of them leading up to this. Holy Spirit didn't do that by accident. And all the pieces lead to this, what what sums up all of part one today, and that is the witness distinction, which is Christ-likeness. The witness distinction is to be a life Of Christ-likeness. Living a life that increasingly reflects the life of Jesus Christ. So here's our big idea for the text today. Write this down. We get nothing else out of this message. We have to get this. To live as a faithful witness, you must live with Christ-like distinction. There it is. To live as a faithful witness, it's all been building towards this, chapters one, two, three, four, five, and six. To live as a faithful witness, you must live with Christ-like distinction. You say, why? Well, quite simply and quite extraordinarily, Jesus Christ was the perfect witness. Would you agree? Jesus Christ was the perfect and is the perfect witness. So here's the question we're confronted with today: Is living like Je- let's just be honest, okay? Let's just be honest before the Lord. How would you honestly answer this question? Is living like Jesus your highest priority? Careful, careful before we nod our heads. You might know the right answer, but ask truly from your heart: Is living like Jesus your highest priority? Is it mine? When we don't get our way, how about in that moment right there? When the pressure's on, when we know our witness will cost us with the people we're speaking with, is living like Jesus your highest priority right there? With your children and how you disciple them, in your marriages, in your neighborhoods. Let's just be honest before the Lord. Is it our highest priority in how we speak, in how we think, in how we live, in the values we keep, in the priorities we have, and how we use our time that we've been given? Would people look at us and say, there's Jesus. I see the Savior. See, I think that highlights the problem you and I face every day. This is why this text is so important. Because Christ-likeness is not often our highest priority, is it? Let's just be honest. We get really selfish sometimes, don't we? Instead of living increasingly in the image of Christ and distinct from this world, we often live in conformity to it. You and I do this every single day. It's a battle we face. Our values that we have, the attitudes we live with and speak with and interact with others with, the priorities we keep, the speech we say, the actions we do, and so much more. And what is the result of this? Here here it is. We lose our Christ-like distinction. And we compromise our witness, loved ones. We compromise our witness. People look at how we live, they see what we value, they hear how we talk, and many times they see no difference from this world. And if you're like me, When I hear that, I'm like, it's tough to live like Christ sometimes, isn't it? Maybe it's just me. It's tough to live like Jesus when the pressure's on, isn't it? And judging by the nods, I think you agree with me too. But I want to encourage us with this before we go any further, because if we try to go further on this, on our own strength, we're sunk. So, Remember this truth. Write this down and we go from here. Here's the beautiful truth about Christ's likeness. God will not ask from you what he's not first willing to do in you. I'll say it again. God will not ask from you what he's not first willing to do in you. Remember that promise from Acts 1.8? Who did he give? He gave us The Holy Spirit. He gave us power to live as his witnesses. The greatest witness who ever lived. Jesus Christ. That means he gave us power for likeness. Be encouraged with that today, loved ones. You and I are not alone on the journey. Amen? So here in our text, it's 34 AD, first century. The church is continuing to grow against all the opposition we've already looked at. And we see one of the greatest examples of Christ-likeness, one of the greatest examples of a faithful witness in the Bible through the life of a young man named Stephen. Now, we were introduced to Stephen, as you know, last week from Acts 6 one to seven. Now let's get a little recap here. Stephen, you know, here's what we have to remember as we approach this text. We can be like, oh, Stephen, I can never do what Stephen did. Listen, listen. Did you know Stephen had only been a believer for a few hundred days max? You know, the church was only a few hundred days old right now. Remember that. He's a new believer, this guy. And let's get a little background of him. Uh, He had a good reputation. Remember from Acts 6, 1 to 7? Stephen's got a good reputation in the church. He's plugged in. He's known. He's got a good reputation of of teaching the word of God, of serving the, the community, of loving God's church and his people. Praise the Lord. I want a reputation like that. Do you? Here's the other thing Acts 6 says. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the promise that Jesus gave that he would give us the Holy Spirit. And so they saw the work of the Spirit. Not only did they see the work of the Spirit, we know Stephen was a true Christian, if he's filled with the Holy Spirit, but also he was filled with wisdom. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit that he came to give, was the wisdom of God in illuminating Scripture to us so that we might understand, and to proclaim and obey in his power. We also know from Acts 6, 1 to 7, Stephen was one of seven leaders who were chosen to serve. Remember, to serve the tables, to serve the Hellenistic Jews, their da- the widows, their daily provisions to care for them. And so here, now, church is booming, and Stephen gives the longest speech in all of Acts right here. Isn't it amazing? A guy who barely hits a mention a couple of verses before. Why did, God do, why did the Holy Spirit do this? He gives them this longest speech in all of Acts. And then it's, that's it. And through his life, through his testimony, we see four marks of Christ like distinction that we must increasingly live out in Christ's power if we're to stay faithful and witness and see Jesus build his church for his glory. You ready to go, loved ones? Ready to get into the life of Stephen? Let's do this. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. Acts chapter six, verse eight. And don't worry, we're not reading the whole text. (laughs) Some of you are like, seriously, you're going to do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be verses 8 to 15. Nice and loud. Okay. Acts chapter 6, 8 to 15. Stephen is seized. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking." Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Hear the word of the Lord, all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated incredible text. Let's go. First thing we see is this. Living with Christ-like distinction means you and I increasingly, because we never hit our distinction ceiling, we increasingly live how? By the power of Jesus. By the power of Jesus. Here's the question we're confronted with from these first eight verses. When you live by Jesus's power, you display Jesus's posture. I'll say it again. When you and I are living by Jesus's power, you and I display Jesus's posture. So question for you and I is, are you? Are you living with the posture, the countenance of Jesus? See here in verses eight to 15, Stephen, it says, full of grace and wisdom and the power of God. That's the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit in his ministry, Stephen is witnessing for Christ, and through him, the Holy Spirit, we see right in the text, the Holy Spirit's doing great miracles and wonders to authenticate the truth of the gospel. And people are repenting of sin, and they're confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, and this looks really good, but did you notice the text? Not everyone's happy about it. Not everyone's happy about it. Here's the first takeaway we need to take. Not everyone will be happy at your witness and mine will you still witness in his power? Not everybody's happy about it. Who's not happy about it? Just go to the text. The synagogue, verse 9, of the freedmen. Now, who's that? This is a group of Jewish slaves. You see, there are some from North Africa, Alexandria. You see there, and Cyrenian, And then also, though, we see this synagogue is made up of Jewish slaves, former Jewish slaves from uh, Cilicia and Asia. That's Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And so they've been released by the Romans, and they've started their own synagogue in Jerusalem, where they'd go to worship God and read the Old Testament. That's what they do in synagogues. They read the Old Testament law. And in verse 9, you see what happens. They rise up after they hear Stephen proclaiming Christ and seeing these miracles. They rise up and start disputing him. Now that word dispute there means they're formally debating him. Bring it on. Formal debates. You think Jesus is a Christ? You think he's the Messiah? And they're going back and forth, back and forth. But do you notice in verse 10? Go to the text, verse 10. They can't withstand him. Awesome. That's awesome. They cannot withstand him. That The word withstand there means they can't overcome him with any arguments. They give their arguments, he was like, yeah, what about this? And they're like, huh. They give another argument, he goes, yeah, but what about, have you thought about this? Well, then what does this mean? And they just have no answer for him. They're absolutely flustered. They can't resist him. Because why? Not because Stephen's so good, but remember what it said at the start. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with God's grace and his power. And here's what we have to understand. Be encouraged, loved ones. The wisdom of man is no match for the wisdom of God. Amen? The wisdom of man is no match for the wisdom of God. So these men start a smear campaign. Now, think about this as we go through this. Think, does this sound familiar to someone else who got confronted for the witness? They're going back and forth, and all of a sudden, there's a smear campaign. They go behind his back because they can't win in a formal debate. So they go against Stephen by lying about him. You see the text? They go lying about him by saying, verse 11, that Stephen is speaking against Moses in the temple. Now, why that's so important because those were the two most revered things. Moses represented God's law. They're they're accusing Stephen of blasphemous talk against God's law and God's house. Two of the most revered things in all of Judaism, the temple and the law. They stir up these people and they use them as false witnesses and they see, notice the text, they seize Stephen and they bring him before the Sanhedrin Council. Now remember the Sanhedrin Council, this is like the Jewish Supreme Court, you'll see a picture of it on the screen. Hey, students, do, how do you think you'd feel right there? You've got 71 Supreme Court judges all around you and you're in the middle being questioned. These were some of the most powerful men and smartest men in all of Israel and you're in the middle and they're looking at you. Starts to feel a little intimidated. There's Stephen, right in the middle of them all. Now, I want you to notice this. Stephen's countenance, his posture in all of this. Verse 15. His opponents, the 71 men in the Sanhedrin, but also the mob of the freedmen that's outside and all the men they've stirred up against him, They're all yelling, they're screaming, they're pointing fingers, they're slandering, they're telling lies. They've grabbed him and and mistreated him and brought him before the council and yet notice Stephen's countenance. Did Did you get it in verse 15? When they saw his face, they're all fixed on him. Look at that picture. Their gaze is on him. Where's Stephen's gaze? His gaze is on the Lord and his face was like the face of an angel. What that means is this: His posture was one of peace. He was not agitated. He was not anxious. Just put yourself in Stephen's shoes. He was not thinking of retaliation. It says he was literally radiant with the glory of God. That's uh, grace towards them, patience towards them, love toward, filled. Radiating the light of God's presence. What, what did they see when they saw Stephen? I've it's the same thing they see when they look at you and I. They saw a man who's been with Jesus. Just lit up. That's why the psalmist says, Those who look to him are radiant. Isn't that beautiful? In ah, amidst all the chaos and the anger, I think that's a good word for our culture today, all the fighting. All the yelling, they see the grace and the glory of God through his servant. Do you, think, do you think the Sanhedrin, do you think the mob noticed a difference in Stephen's posture? Do you? I do. Bring it into today. What would your posture be right there? Whose power would be displayed right there? your power in trying to defend yourself and get angry and try to one-up and win an argument? How about this? When your witness is on the line like Stephen's right here, when mine, when the trial hits, when the pain is deep, right in the middle of the gossip that's being said about you, when the opposition and hostility is coming in your workplace for your witness for Christ or on your sports teams, Or in your family, when it's not a comfortable situation, are they seeing the posture of Jesus through you? When you don't feel like you have any control? When you didn't plan for it? When it feels like, here's one, you're standing alone. Students in your schools, may I remind you again, if you are saved in Jesus Christ, you are never alone. love you hope youth do they see a man or woman who's been with Jesus what's your posture you think our world today would notice the posture of Jesus the countenance of peace in the midst of anger me too See, here's, here's the key where it all starts, this whole witness for Christ, in Christlikeness. You'll see it on the screen. Distinction in Jesus is only fueled by the power of Jesus. Stephen does not have the face of an angel on his own strength, and neither will you or I. You and I are not strong enough. We cannot muster up enough courage to have the face of an angel in the midst of hostility. Distinction in Jesus is only fueled by the power of Jesus. And when you live by Jesus's power, you display Jesus's posture. Back to our question. Are you in your situations right now? And you may say this, because this is hard, right? This is hard. This is why we have the problem each day. You may say, well, how do we live in Jesus's power I hear that. I want that. But what does that practically, let's drill down. What does that practically look like? How do we live in the power of the Holy Spirit that he gave us to witness? Okay, four things real quick. We see all throughout scripture. Ready? Ready for a good systematic theology of living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here we go. Through salvation in him. Acts 2.38. Peter says, repent and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. You cannot receive the Holy Spirit by just simply doing good works. You cannot receive the power of the Holy Spirit by just coming to church and getting your attendance in and thinking that you're okay. Listen, there's only one way to receive the Holy Spirit. There's only one way to be a follower of Christ, to even be a witness for Christ, and that is through salvation in Christ, loved ones. By repenting of our sin and confessing Jesus as our Lord and Savior, believing he's the Son of God believing what Stephen's about to declare here, that there is one Messiah, one payment for sin, and it does not come through any other name of any other God or person under heaven other than the name of Jesus Christ. There is no power apart from salvation in Christ. Secondly, as we are saved in him, draw near to him. Draw near to him. James 4.8 says this. I love James 4.8. It's very convicting. I love that. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And we tend to leave it there. Don't forget the second half of the verse, loved ones. Keep it in context. How are we to draw near to God? Not flippantly. Not like, no, I don't have to worry about anything if I'm coming in with right reverence. He says, look, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know what that means? We got to come to the Lord with a posture of examination and say, Search me, oh God. Where am I resisting the Holy Spirit by ongoing sin in my life that I'm not willing to address? And it's actually hindering the work of the Holy Spirit and grieving Him in my relationship with you. We need to draw near the Lord through His Word and let the, wo- oh, loved ones, loved ones, God's Word is a treasure. Get in front of it every day and let it be the mirror to your soul. It may not always be comfy, but it will always be good. It will always be good because he loves you and he will only work out of the good of those who love him. Let it be a mirror even when it pierces and repent and there is never condemnation on the other side of repentance. There's only God's comfort. Draw near to him every day in the word. It fuels the power of the Holy Spirit and realigns our hearts to him. Thirdly, thirdly, so we draw near to him. We call on him, call on him. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not be drunk with wine for that leads to debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. The Greek verb there is an active imperative, ongoing. It means be, being filled. The picture is of a sailboat, the Holy Spirit filling the sails the boat doesn't move if there's no wind call on him say holy spirit fill me again going into this meeting going into this next class going into the next game in my com- I see my neighbor coming holy spirit fill me right now to be able to minister as a witness for Jesus Christ that you call me to be be being filled and then fourthly Walk in him. Salvation in him. Draw near to him. Call on him. And now walk in him. Look what Jesus says in John 15, 4-5. He makes this so clear. He says, abide. That means remain in me. Remain. Be steadfast in me. And I in you. As the branch, he gives this beautiful illustration, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and whoever abides in me and I in him, oh, here it goes, he it is that bears much fruit. Welcome to Stephen. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That means you and I can do no spiritual good apart from the power of Christ in us, the Holy Spirit. It's right there, it's where it all starts. Living with a life of Christ-like distinction means you live by the power of Jesus. So we'll look at that list and be like, man, where do I need, just put it back up for a second, team. where do I need to get right with the Lord? Where's your next step right there? He's ready, and he's ready to help you. Living with Christ-like distinction means you live by the power of Jesus, but also, no power, no distinction. Here's what living with power overflows to, you live with the courage of Jesus. You live with the courage of Jesus. And when you live with the courage of Jesus, you declare the truth of Jesus. Will you? Will I? Will we declare the truth of Jesus in the hard stuff? Even when we don't think people are going to want to hear it, will we live and declare the truth in the courage of Jesus? Now, you notice this point, biggest point I've ever preached. It is 53 verses. <laughs> I'm not going to read every single verse. I'm going to give us an overview and hit some key text that emphasize the points that need to be brought out here. So pay attention, eyes in the book. The high priest then asked Stephen if the accusations leveled against him are true. You notice verse one there where it says, are these things so? Here's what he's saying. How do you plead? Today's language. How do you plead, Stephen, all these accusations? And Stephen, knowing what he's up against, knowing what it's about to cost him, He doesn't shrink back, does he? He displays gospel-empowered, Jesus-empowered courage, and he gives a courageous speech before the Sanhedrin of 53 verses, and masterfully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, lays out a defense of the Christian faith and Jesus as the Messiah from the Old Testament. Remember, loved ones, why do we preach every single word of the word of God, both Testaments? Because all of it points to Jesus. He is the hero of literally every story. The Old Testament points to This is called biblical theology, by the way. Let's get sound biblical theology. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament reveals Jesus. All right? He's all over the pages. And Stephen's about to show us what this looks like. How does he do this? He recounts Israel's history as a nation to show them that what the Sanhedrin were charging him with, remember verses 13 and 14, blaspheming Moses, God's law, and blaspheming the temple, God's house, the things they're charging him with are exactly what they've always been doing. And they're doing it now. And he's not guilty. He's innocent. They're guilty. How does he do this? Two parts. Write these down. Stephen's speech, charge one, he addresses the blaspheming of God's law given to Moses. Beginning in verse two, pay attention, follow along here, loved ones. Stephen recounts the history of how Israel rejected their most, even most revered leaders. The leaders that God had raised up and sent them to be their deliverers, their redeemers, On his behalf. And in doing so, in rejecting the leaders that God had raised up, they were ultimately rejecting God himself. Okay? With thus far. And so who were some of these leaders? He starts with Joseph in verses 9 to 16. Joseph, who was, you'll see there multiple times, he says, he was rejected by the patriarchs, his own brothers. He was put into a pit, Patriarchs, the founders of Israel, rejecting their brother. And yet under God's sovereignty and God's providence, Joseph gets pulled out of the pit, gets put into Egypt. After serving in Potiphar's house, he gets put into jail under false accusation. And under God's sovereignty, again, he pulls him out. And by God's grace, he makes him the uh, most powerful man in Egypt besides Pharaoh himself. And ultimately, God saved the Israelites, the nation of Israel, from a famine that would have devastated them through Joseph, even though he'd been rejected. Next, he goes to Moses, verses 17 to 43. You'll see in the text there, Moses was rejected by Israel. In Egypt, they rejected him when they were in slavery. And then when he was delivered, they rejected him. How many times did they reject him in the wilderness? Grumbling, complaining against him. And they worshiped other gods. You can see it in verses 42 to 43. Let's read that. But God turned away and gave them over to their worship. It's like, you're gonna keep rejecting me by rejecting the leaders? This is the, like this should send the fear of God into us. Look what he does. He turns them over to what they think they want. Ouch. That's a fearful thing. He says, he gave them over to worship to the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me? This is God questioning the Israelites. He goes, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifice? Were you worshipping me during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You were rejecting my leaders that I sent to you. The redeemer that I had sent in my place to display me to you. He says, 43, you took up the tent of Moloch. With child sacrifice. And you took up the star of your God, Refan. Images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile in Babylon. You rejected me. Not to mention the old golden calf in Exodus 32. And he says, so there's, there's Joseph, there's Moses, but then he goes on in verse 52. The prophets, you see it there. He persecuted the prophets, why? Because the prophet's designation, they were selected by God to call the Israelites back to a right relationship with God out of their sin, to teach them the law of God, to call them to holiness and to be at peace with God. And what they do? Well, Jeremiah got beat up and thrown into a well. Nobody listened to him. And Isaiah, he was sawed in two in a log, And then Elijah, how many times did did Jezebel and Ahab seek to kill Elijah? Rejection, 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 rejection. And here's the key we need to see. Stephen is showing them that just like the people of Israel rejected their leaders sent by God in the past, those that God had called to save them and deliver them from the penalty of sin and lead them into a right relationship with him, guess what they're doing? They're now rejecting the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one whom God sent to save them, the true savior, the greater Joseph. Jesus is the greater Joseph. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater Elijah. He is the greater David. And all of these other leaders that God sent were the type of him, pointing to him, pointing to Jesus who alone can save us from the penalty of sin, and bring us into a right relationship with God, and Jesus, who ultimately fulfilled the law that all of those leaders and prophets proclaimed. He says, you rejected them, and they were pointing you to him. Now you're rejecting him. But Stephen doesn't stop there. He also addresses their second charge against him. Charge number two, write it down, blaspheming God's house. So it wasn't just the law. That they were blaspheming. It's God's house, the temple, beginning with Abraham in verse 2. Stephen is also showing them that God is not confined to a temple made by hands of man. Amen? They, and, and here's what we have to understand. Put that picture of the temple on the screen there. This is a picture of the temple in Jerusalem, and man, the Israelites took a lot of pride in this temple. This was the dwelling place of God on earth. They took so much pride. We've got the temple, God's dwelling place. But notice what Stephen's doing, starting in verse 2 with Abraham. He's like, God's been with his people guiding, protecting, providing for them outside the temple since the beginning. Beginning in verse 2, he was with Abraham in Mesopotamia, Haran, in Jacob and Moses, he was in Egypt, David and Solomon, he was outside the temple, he was still in Israel, etc. God doesn't need a man made temple to be worshiped in. Stephen's saying, I respect why the temple was created. Of course. But he's like, You're blaspheming God because God's not confined to your temple. Don't put him in your box. That's why he goes on to say, and quote Isaiah 66, look at verses 48 to 50. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Isaiah, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? What do you think you can build to contain me? I was with Abraham in in Haran. And I was with Moses in Egypt. You think I'm confined to a temple? Why are you so arrogant about this? You can see why it would be bothering them. He says, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest?" Verse 50, did not my hand make all these things? See, he indicts right here. Stephen indicts the religious leaders for blaspheming God because they thought they could contain and confine him to the temple. And he says, in summary, you misunderstood the nature and purpose of the temple. And you are blaspheming it because you're rejecting. Get this, get this. Look at that picture. He says, you are rejecting the very one who was not only the fulfillment of the law, but who was the fulfillment that the temple was pointing to. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. See that temple right there? The dwelling place of God with man. Who does that point to? Jesus Christ incarnate. God made flesh. He says, you're misunderstanding it. You're blaspheming the purpose of it. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, fully God, yet became fully man to dwell among his people, not in buildings of stone, but in the hearts of his people. Does his kingdom advance? Magnificent. And here's the climax, verse 51 to 53. Let's read. I wonder if by you know, loved ones, I was thinking about this. I wonder if by now Stephen looks at their faces and is starting to get that it's not getting through. I wonder if by now, watch this. He says, You stiff-necked people. He probably saw the looks on their faces. He says, You stiff-necked people. That means you're obstinate. Unwilling to change. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's what the prophets were announcing. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. That is Jesus. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. He says he delivered by angels because on the Mount Sinai, it says that angels were with God delivering the law to Moses. He says, but you're not keeping it. You see, Stephen courageously, right here, that takes courage, doesn't it? You know your life's on the line. But he courageously preaches the truth so that others may live. And he speaks the truth in love, the hard truth. He says, yet in your stubbornness and hard-heartedness, you refuse to acknowledge the truth. You're resisting the Holy Spirit, and you've betrayed and murdered the righteous one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay, live in the text. Go back into the courtroom again. Let's shift. Go ahead, Sanhedrin. Into the courtroom. Stephen courageously speaking the truth about the person and work of Christ. He's preaching the gospel right here in front of 71 of the most powerful men in Israel, knowing it will cost them. And yet, notice... See the Christ-likeness? Just like our Savior. Jesus Christ proclaimed the truth of who he was. Son of God, Messiah, righteous one, the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the temple, sent by God for salvation, for the forgiveness of sin, for all who repent and believe in him. Here, Stephen does the same. Why? Eyes up here. So that others may live. and he knows it will cost him. But he's not running, because he's filled with the power of Christ, and that means the courage of Christ. When you live with the courage of Jesus, you will declare the truth of Jesus, even when it's hard. Will you? Will I? See, will you do this in your home parents? You might think, well, I don't want to turn my kids off scripture. Will you declare the truth of Jesus? in your workplace in your neighborhoods when it will cost you popularity and position when that promotion won't come your way declaring it with courageous clarity that Jesus is the only Messiah the way, the truth and the life the only one who can forgive our sins and that we can be saved from the penalty of our sin ultimately which is hell separation from God for eternity and have peace with God and eternal life with him will you declare it so that others may live Brothers and sisters, if you've made that decision to follow Christ, who has God put in front of you to declare this? Will you live right there with that person, with the Christ-like courage? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. And if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, my question to you today is this. Just like the Sanhedrin right here in verse 51, will today be the day you stop resisting the Holy Spirit? And hardening your heart? And will you see the truth and believe and repent of your sin and confess Jesus as Lord and have life in His name, eternal life and the forgiveness of sin? And believers, hey, let's not be fooling ourselves. You and I can resist the Holy Spirit too. Where are you doing that? Delayed obedience is just disobedience. Living with Christ-like distinction means you live by the power of Jesus, with the courage of Jesus. And if we are to live with the courage of Jesus, here here we go, ready? Living with Christ-like distinction means we live with the perspective of Jesus. I love this. Perspective of Jesus. When you live with Jesus' perspective, guess where your eyes are, where your gaze is? It's on eternity. It's on eternity. Question, is yours? Is your gaze on eternity today? Look at 54 to 58. Keep reading. The stoning of Stephen. Students, eyes in the book. You're gonna wanna follow. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. The Sanhedrin enraged and they ground their teeth at him, like furious. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. Where is his eyes? Fixed on heaven. And he saw. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and this, what a moment, hey, loved ones. And the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. They covered it. We don't wanna hear anymore. We're done. We're done. They stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And when they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. See, after hearing Stephen's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah and hearing his indictment against them that they betrayed and murdered him, the Sanhedrin, verse 54, they are enraged, grind their teeth, and they refuse to listen anymore. They stop their ears, 57, and they grab him, and they cast him out of Jerusalem, and they stone him, That is the penalty for blasphemy. They had to drag them out of the city. At least they did one thing that was following the law. And then they stoned him. This mob grabs him. And yet, instead of focusing his perspective on the opposition in front of him, oh, you see it? Notice where Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, is fixing his gaze. Verse 55, in heaven. His eyes are fixed on eternity. An eternal perspective. And what does he see? What does he see? Don't, don't skip past it. What does he see? God gives him a vision of what is waiting for him. And God gives him a vision of what is waiting for all who've confessed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Just a few moments from now, Stephen will know. That in full. Jesus, he sees, is standing at the right hand of God. Now notice this. This is one of the few times we see Jesus at the right hand of God described as standing and not sitting. Why? You know what the posture of standing means? Two things. First off, it means Jesus, here he is. Here's God the Father over here. Jesus standing. Stephen's looking up. It means that he is honoring Stephen before the Father. Remember how Jesus said, if you deny me towards men, I will deny you towards the Father. If you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before the Father. And Jesus stands up and says, there he is, Father, the faithful servant. And the standing posture, also the second thing it means is, he's welcoming Stephen home. He's just, he's just welcoming him home. Loved ones, be encouraged with this. Jesus will stand for those who stand for him. And you see, this is what it's like. This is like a Rembrandt painting, I believe. This is what it's like. There's Stephen on his knees, and they've got the rocks, and they're pounding him, his eyes toward heaven, And as you look at that, when you hear this, although the trial was great, Stephen was looking to something much greater, someone much greater. Heaven, where he, right there in the midst of all that anger, all that chaos, Stephen, in just a few moments, would be welcomed, rewarded, and in the presence of Jesus for eternity. Can you see it? Loved ones, are your eyes fixed on that day? Jesus is standing there at the right hand of the Father and he says this. I'm right here, son. You're almost home. It's all going to be worth it. Every blow you're about to take, I took. So that you may live. You're almost home. Just a few more moments. Get your eyes on me. Your future is secure. You have nothing to fear. Just a few moments, son. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. I'm standing right here. You are not alone. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Just a few more moments, Stephen. Welcome home. I want to live for that day. You want to live for that day? Welcome home. You persevered in courage and in my power. Your eyes fixed on me. Welcome home. Don't lose that perspective, loved ones. I know it's hard. I know the trial can be painful. But Jesus is there. His eyes are watching. He is saying, look to me. Look to me. I am standing. And at this moment, all this rejection, beatings, and slander, and opposition was such a small thing compared to the eternal joy and glory of God that was, Stephen was about to know in full. And see, when you live with Jesus' perspective, your eyes are on eternity. Not simply here. If you and I keep it here, we say it's not worth it. The cost is too great. When we look up here, we say nothing can be too great for my king, for my savior. Are your eyes on eternity? What is distracting you from this? we can look at hebrews 12, 1 and 2 you'll see it here is this not the posture the perspective of jesus look at this therefore since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses which stephen is one of now he says let us also lay aside every weight what's that things that not necessarily sinful but they're not helpful for keeping your eyes on jesus what's that for you maybe it's time to stop scrolling youtube throw off the weight lay aside every weight, and the sin. There it is, the resisting the Holy Spirit. Where are we just walking in sin? Not examining ourselves that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here it is, eternal perspective, looking to Jesus. Here's Stephen right here, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before us, before him, endured the cross. See, he's looking to heaven. The joy of the glory of God. He endured the cross, despised the same. He thought little of it compared to the glory that was awaiting him. Oh, come on. And now he's seated at the right hand of God. Where are your eyes? Living with Christ-like distinction means you live in the power of Jesus, with the courage of Jesus, with the perspective of Jesus. And lastly, it all flows to this. Ready? Last point of Acts part one. Get your pens ready. Lastly, it means we live with the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus. When you live with Jesus' love, here it is. Say, how do I know if I'm living with the love of Jesus? When you live with Jesus' love, you will extend Jesus' grace. When you live with Jesus' love, you will extend Jesus' grace. And the question facing you and I is this. Will we? Will we? Look at 59 and 60. This is absolutely supernatural. Supernatural. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, prayer number one, receive my spirit. That sounds familiar. When Jesus on the cross said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Here it is. Now watch. 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold. Can you just hear it? All the anger and all the screaming and the pounding. He says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Prayer number two. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, as they're stoning him, Stephen's eyes fixed on eternity. Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, notice what he doesn't do? He doesn't lash out at them. What does he do? He prays for them. Talk about grace. He's not lashing out in retaliation. He prays for them. After asking Jesus to receive his spirit, he prays to the Lord. Did you see it, loved ones? He prays to the Lord to not hold their sin against them. What's he praying for there? What does that mean? He prays for their salvation. He prays for God to forgive them. And he prays for those persecuting him, just like Jesus did. Luke 23, 34, on the cross. Grace. He extends grace. And notice in verse 60, I love this. The Holy Spirit just adds this in. The very end says, after saying this, what happened to him? Did you read it? He fell asleep. You know what that means? Stephen didn't ultimately die. He took a nap. Let's say it again. Stephen didn't ultimately die. He took a nap and then started truly living for the first time in his life. Fully assured of the resurrection. And one day his body will meet him there. His soul is with the Lord. Like all true believers if you have repented of your sin and confess Christ as Savior. See, put that picture back up for a moment. How would you respond? With grace? To those who are hurting you? In the world today, and the normal response is to respond in anger and hatred, sinfully, to those who hurt you. An eye for an eye. Living for self. But write this down. In Christ We don't respond from retaliation, but from salvation. In Jesus Christ, you and I do not respond from retaliation, but from salvation, knowing how much we've been forgiven, how much we are loved. We respond from salvation to those who oppose us. We respond in his love and grace by his power at work in us. We respond in love, not hatred. In generosity, not selfishness. In impartiality, not not partiality. In humility, not pride. In gentleness, not harshness. In truth, not deceit. In prayer, not slander. In forgiveness, not unforgiveness. Knowing how much we have been forgiven. This is distinction. This is Jesus. To live as faithful witness, we must live with his distinction, his power, his courage, his perspective, and his love. And when you live with Jesus' love, you and I extend Jesus' grace. Are you? And I want you to notice something before we close here. I want you to notice, did you see? Do you know how Jesus answered Stephen's prayer here? That he would forgive them? The key is in uh, verse 58. There was a young man, don't miss this. There was a young man named Saul. A young man named Saul watching over the proceedings. He was actually running the coat check. You see this? They're all laying their coats at his feet so they can go stone him. And there's a young man named Saul watching over these. The one who in Acts 8, a chapter later, would become the greatest persecutor of the church in the days ahead. You say, well, how is that an answer to prayer? Get to Acts 9. You get to Acts 9 and you see how God answered the prayer, the grace extended by Stephen in the name of Jesus And that Saul would have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and would become one of the greatest witnesses for Jesus, one of the greatest church planters who ever lived. No one is too far gone for the Savior. Amen? Amen. Who has God put around you to extend his love towards? He will waste nothing. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. You are awesome. And we thank you. We thank you for the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel. Thank you for Jesus' work, that it is in Christ alone our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, our song. We find our peace in Him, we find our hope in Him. When fear assails, we look to Him. Bless you, Lord. For your work on the cross. And Lord, I pray right now we would be so encouraged and strengthened in our faith to live with increasing Christ likeness, that you would empower us to live courageously and with an eternal perspective and with the love of Christ to a world that is crying out for it, with great confidence, knowing that you will never leave or forsake us. God, I pray in the days ahead. Lord, even though this series stops at this point, and we'll pick it up, Lord willing, in the next calendar, Lord, I pray our witness would not stop. I pray we would leave here. Lord, who have you put in front of me? What do you want from me, Lord? Whatever it takes that others may live. That others may live. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Lord, find us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. loved ones. Will you stand and respond with us and let's make this a declaration like